and welcome to As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm Sharon Shu, And I'm Kari Sellison. Today we are finally concluding our discussion of the unpleasantness at the Bologna Club. We're going to be talking about the last third of the book, uh, starting from chapter 17 to the end. And we will be giving away the final whodunit. We had a whodunit that we gave away, but this is the actual close the case whodunit. And with that, let's get into the unpleasantness at the Bologna Club one last time. Cars, I'm excited to talk about this part because we finally get to meet Anne Dorland. Finally. After so many pages. So many pages of having her mentioned and never meeting her at all. No. And it's interesting, right? Because we don't see her through Peter's point of view right away. Parker actually Mm -hmm. goes to interview, I guess, a handful of people at at her house. And then finally, finally, Miss Dorland herself. Yes. Because after the last chapter, when the results of the exhumation autopsy are revealed, this becomes a, a police matter. It's no longer a private inquiry into an inheritance. It is a murder investigation. Mm-hmm. In the final third of the book. <laughs> <laughs> Finally got there. Yeah. And I think similarly to how poor Bunter gets sent to talk to servants, here we have Parker dispatched. Uh, well, not dispatched. I mean, he's there in official capacity, but talking to the housekeeper, talking to the maid. I love that little bit where one of the maids remarks afterward to the housekeeper that Parker was quite, quite the gentleman. Uh, and the housekeeper replies, no, Nellie, gentleman like, I will not deny, but a policeman is a person and I will trouble you to remember it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the main information that Parker is getting is specifics about the movements of General Fentiman in the house, right? That he came in, he was asked upstairs, he paused on the landing He spoke privately with his sister. He was given a a brandy because he wasn't feeling well. So like all of the nuts and bolts of who was where, who had the tray, who Mm -hmm. was the tray set down at any point. Just like all that information that is kind of crucial for us as readers to know Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, because of the rules. Yes. Yeah. This isn't one of those mysteries where it's just like some random person did it. Mm -hmm. You know, like, oh, the tray was set down and someone wandered through and put poison in it. That possibility is eliminated by having this like careful record mm-hmm. of the lack of opportunity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we also we learn from the ladies made that Miss Dorland had been, um, quote, messing about with bottles and things, chemist mm-hmm. stuff. So, yeah. you know, the maid sort of drops that as like, oh, that was one of her, you know, silly little hobbies. But right. That's... That her art studio had kind of become a, a little bit of a lab. Yeah. As her yeah. interests shifted exactly so parker takes that and and is like okay then you know i really need to know if there was any point at which she could have dropped something into the brandy that the general had then he meets her parker is not very sympathetic he thinks what an unattractive girl she was with her sullen manner and gracelessness of form and movement she's very like brusque and impatient with him which 
Parker being old fashioned, you know, it says like Parker disliked a swearing woman. Mm-hmm. So they're just kind of like off to the wrong foot to begin with. But then he he has her take him to her studio, during which we get at length a, a description of everything he sees, every object that's there, because again, the rules. Mm-hmm. Parker notices that she has a dictionary of medicine, and then you know, kind of like looks at all the paintings that she's produced, does not think very highly of, um, you know, you get the sense that Parker is not an aficionado of like abstract art. Um, (laughs) The clever comment he comes up with on one of her character portraits is like, it doesn't look very like her. (laughs) So you get the sense that Anne Dorland's been producing like Picasso-esque you know, portraits or paintings of people nowhere near as like accomplished as Picasso, but more in that abstract cubist vein. And and Parker's like, I don't understand. (laughs) It's not realism. (laughs) Yeah. But also like we understand from Marjorie that whatever Anne Dorland is doing, she's not doing it very well. Right. It's not, it's not genius. (laughs) Yeah. It's just like, she's, she's fundamentally not good at art. And, like, not just because she's not a genius, but, like, Marjorie says at one point, like, she doesn't have any color sense. (laughs) She doesn't have an artistic eye at all. Mm -hmm. You know, she's, like, attempted a Madonna and child, which, quote, Mm -hmm. to Parker's simple evangelical mind seemed an abominable blasphemy. (laughs) (laughs) But it's funny, right? Because then he, he, like, in the next chapter, he says to Peter, oh, I wish you'd you'd been there to see it because because you're artistic, the paintings might have conveyed something more or something different to you. Mm -hmm. So kind of going back to that trope of like, oh, yeah, we knew Dennis Cathcart's personality because of his bedside reading. There's, I think, an indicator here that like to the enterprising detective or to the artistic detective, the artwork that a suspect produces would also be um, very telling of their their state of mind or, you know, even indicate like guilty or not guilty, which I don't know. Is that how art works? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I do think that art, like any artistic expression, tells you about something about the the person who made it. Mm -hmm. But whether... Like, how much you can draw from that, you know, it really depends. Yeah. And, you know, like, terrible people can make wonderful art. Yes. You know? <laughs> As history has shown. <laughs> yes. And and wonderful people can make art that is... Uh, Anemic? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or saccharine. <laughs> and people can explore themes in art that are uncomfortable or that are dark and it not be a reflection of like oh this person must have such a tortured soul it's just like no i'm fine right i just this this was just the direction this art took it's exactly you know yeah like the reading lolita problem right yeah yeah english 101 students always want to be like oh this is indicative that nabokov was like a degenerate and it's like yeah it's like you know you've missed the point Mm -hmm. or uh I didn't read the article, but I saw a headline that was like 20 complex romances or something, whatever. And someone had been like, uh, they they cite Lolita and that's all you need to know about this article. Oh. And I was just like, oh, no, mm. someone missed the point. Would not call it a romance. Would not. No. 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 <laughs> like I even like what I like actually when I was reading it, someone was just like, oh, isn't isn't what's-his-name such a, an interesting hero? I'm just like, he's not a hero. Ooh. That's the wrong word. Yeah. Maybe you meant that in the generic main character sense, but uh, no. No. 
No. I mean, and like the whole point, I mean, not the whole point, but like part, certainly part of the point of the book is that like Humbert Humbert thinks of himself as the hero, tries to figure right. himself as the hero. And that's the whole problem, right? Is that he's so selfish and solipsistic that he can't, mm-hmm. he can't imagine the story being some other way. Like it, that he can't accurately right. read the story or tell it as like the horror story that it is. Right. Mm-hmm. He paints himself as this artistic soul who, who is magnetically drawn to this, <laughs> this certain type of girl because he's enchanted by them and isn't this romantic it's just like no it's not it's not it's bad and weird yeah yeah somehow those types of men can never be magnetically drawn to you know age appropriate women <laughs> right he views it as a, a great love story and just it's not it's not and just the idea of anyone reading it and thinking that we're supposed to sympathize with him mm-hmm. just because he's the the point of view character and Oh, a, a bad misreading of what literature is supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But this isn't this isn't a podcast about Lolita. No, this is not uh, a, <laughs> a Novoco podcast. It's like, yeah, we could go off on a whole thing about, um, because, you know, I didn't enjoy reading it. Mm. I, like I, on a technical level, I found it very interesting to read, yeah. uh, but I didn't like it. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, and that's the whole, that's the whole seduction, right? For the reader yeah. is that it's so beautifully written um, right it's it's very beautiful writing for like very horrific plot mm-hmm. points and yeah and that's yeah. that's what it is yeah yeah and so but like stuff that like that can can be written by people who are like perfectly sane and reasonable and who know exactly what they're doing that's true yes yes what you can tell about someone i think from like the art they produce is a little bit maybe about like what questions they were asking mm. the universe mm-hmm. when they were making it. Yeah. And, and I kind of like, and I think that that is the, the direction that Peter is kind of going for, you know, like he wants to get an emotional read on Andorlin. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that he thinks that those paintings would show him. And that's why he's so interested to see them. Right. Yeah. I mean, Parker even sort of notices that, you know, cause she shows him, some portraits, some landscapes, and Parker at least knows enough to to sort of comment mentally on the fact that the landscapes seem to be like a newer development for her, that at some point she got sick of painting portraits and kind of gave them up. So in that sense, like like the the questions she's asking or the the subject matter that she's interested in is traceable. Mm-hmm. through looking at like the the whole collection of her paintings together. Right. But certainly, yeah, none of them are recognizable <laughs> people. <laughs> yeah. Not to to Parker in Mm-mm. this moment. No. Um Peter is going to recognize someone mm-hmm. later on that's going to give him more insight. Yeah. Um uh, speaking of Peter, mm-hmm. we get back to him in the next chapter, you know, like after Parker has we ha- we get a whole chapter of Parker being on the job essentially Mm -hmm. and then we come back to he's relating what he learned to peter and peter is saying that he wished he had seen the paintings yes peter's doing the thing that he has done before where he goes who who cares about this case why does this case matter why am i doing this (laughs) yeah i mean again the the mirroring of a natural death right where he's i think he's confronting because they're talking about like 
okay, both Fentiman brothers had motive now that Parker has sort of essentially ruled out that Andorlin might have slipped the general something, you know, we're kind of back to Robert and George and Peter's thinking about the fact that they're his friends, you know, and they're comrades in arms and ah, why? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What does it matter if old Fentiman was pushed painlessly off a bit before his time? He was simply indecently ancient. (laughs) Um, To which Parker replies, we'll see if you say that in 60 years time. (laughs) (laughs) And then Peter says, by that time we shall, I hope, be moving in different circles. I shall be in the one devoted to murderers and you in the much lower and hotter one devoted for those who tempt others to murder (laughs) (laughs) Which I love, just a little rewriting of Dante. Yes. But yeah, similar to Unnatural Death, where, you know, I mean, Peter has a very strongly developed moral sense, but I think there is this gray area he's willing to acknowledge, especially when an inheritance is involved, like it was kind of better for everybody, for the general or for Miss Dawson from the previous book to pass on into like, you know, for their money to be split up in a way that would benefit Mm -hmm. people. And he's, he's feeling a little bit sick of this case, because it's like, once again, okay, you know, he might have to to put somebody away and and this time it might be one of his friends right right so I don't think he has I mean it's certainly not a a very serious crisis of conscience I think he's just right the narrative refers to the case as irritating and unsatisfactory Mm -hmm. so Peter is he's just annoyed (laughs) he's like this case is stupid (laughs) and I don't like it I'd be very curious if any of our listeners share share that feeling (laughs) about this case it's just it's a lot it really is Mm -hmm. it is a nest a a rat's nest yeah so peter threatens to wash his hands of the case but the narrative says that like pontius Pilate, he found society irrationally determined to connect him with an irritating and unsatisfactory case which is an interesting commentary on Pontius Pilate. Right. And like the crucifixion of Jesus is irritating and unsatisfactory. <laughs> anyway. I'm sure Pontius Pilate felt that way. <laughs> He's just like, what is all of this this religious stuff? I'm just I'm just trying to be a minor government official and run things. And Leave I don't me need out this. Of it. Yeah. I didn't ask for this. Did be asked to be marked down in history as such. <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm just trying to do my job. I, I don't even know what's going on. Mm, good old, just trying to do my job. Yeah. I mean, like, his job did involve, like, being an occupier. Yeah. So, so. can't have too much sympathy for him. But also, it's just like, I didn't ask to be part of this religious narrative. <laughs> <clears throat> but, yes. That night, uh, things take a turn for the even more dramatic. Yeah. So George Fentiman goes missing mm-hmm. and it's, it's made very clear that this is like part of his, part of the way that his, his trauma and his PTSD manifest, right? When Whimsy goes down to see Sheila, you know, he finds out that the trouble it seemed had begun at breakfast. Ever since the story of the murder had come out, George had been very nervy and jumpy and to Sheila's horror had started muttering again. Muttering, Whimsy remembered, had formerly been the prelude to one of George's queer fits. These had been a form of shell shock, and they had generally ended in his going off and wandering about in a distraught manner for several days, sometimes with partial and occasionally with complete temporary loss of memory. And it goes on to say, like, the different situations that he'd been found in, like, dancing naked among a flock of sheep, mm-hmm. wandering into a bonfire. And it's really, I don't know, I just, like, I couldn't help when I was reading this bit really contrasting it to like how much care 
Peter's given when he has his PTSD episodes. You know, his whole family rallies around. He gets taken to the country. Bunter's there. Like, there's Mm -hmm. just all of this apparatus around him. Whereas George, every time he has an episode, he loses his job, right? Mm -hmm. And it just, like, pushes him and Sheila more and more towards the brink of, of desperation. And it's, I mean, it's just like one of those places where I think the book is really clear eyed about like, yeah, if you don't have money, if you don't have a support system, like your outcomes are just so much worse. Yeah. And that's just terrible. I don't know that I have anything other, you know, otherwise to say than (laughs) just like, ah, capitalism is bad. Um. (laughs) Uh, I like, I really like the interaction that Whimsy has with Sheila here Mm. because like it she calls at midnight with this urgent message that you know like George is gone and she can't get hold of Robert and she doesn't know what to do and she's scared Whimsy has has just gone to bed but he gets dressed again and goes over and Whimsy is trying to manage Sheila you know like she's in a panic he's just like oh you like you need to eat something you like you need a hot drink Mm -hmm. you like you sit down and I'll make this and he's like she's trying to tell him stuff and he and he's kind of talking over her (laughs) and there's a part where where she's like but i must tell you about george and he it says he looked at her and decided that she really must tell him about george and he says i'm sorry i didn't mean to bully one has an ancestral idea that women must be treated like imbeciles in a crisis centuries of the women and children first idea i suppose poor devils she says who the women (laughs) yes no wonder they sometimes lose their heads pushed into corners told nothing of what's happening and made to sit quiet and do nothing Strong men would go dotty in the cirques. I suppose that's why we've always grabbed the privilege of rushing about and doing the heroic bits. Mm. And I appreciate that self-awareness. Yeah. You know, that like, oh, I'm in this situation. I'm going to do all these things. And you sit quietly there. I'm going to do these. You know, he's like, wait, no, you, you know, Mm -hmm. like you need occupation as well. Like you need to do something other than sit still while I handle this. Yeah. Peter starting to see women as people. Yeah. <laughs> and like like Sheila says, give me the kettle. He says, no, no, I'll do that. You sit down and, I mean, sorry, take the kettle. <laughs> <laughs> you do it. Mm-hmm. So Sheila's recounting, you know, to, to Peter all what happened. Earlier in the day, someone had been coming up to the house and Sheila said, who are these? They look like plainclothes policemen. And George panics and like he goes into the bedroom and gets something and like goes Mm -hmm. out to to the yard and is doing something yeah and it turns out that you know sheila takes a a heart medication with digitalin in it which is what the general overdosed on Mm -hmm. and so george was getting rid of the bottle of that medication which does not look very good for george no especially now that he has gone off the rails and disappeared yeah and sheila and george's um their landlords kind of show up to rub it in, which is mm-hmm. really not very kind of them. Right. These are deeply unpleasant people, mm-hmm. Mr. and Mrs. Munns. Yeah. They're like almost Dickensian in how like yeah. overly horrible <laughs> they are. And to Peter's credit, like here, you know, there's this one point where Peter says, shut up, you fool, said Whimsy savagely. And it was, you know, I think when Mr. Munns was like going on and on with, with great relish about somebody else who'd gone mad and you know i think it's it might be like the most savage that we've seen peter mm-hmm. um with a bystander so far and it's really you know i think i think there's a lot here about class where like he can't 
he can't just, you know, give George and Sheila money because they would have too much pride to take it and it would be inappropriate. Yeah. But like he's he's really trying to help these poor people out in whatever way he can, including trying to solve the case. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting to me how much we get of that that sort of class difference specifically in this novel and how how Sayers has it, you know, sort of intersect with with the war and with trauma and yeah, and it's interesting that this this event causes a little bit of a, it's not even an argument between Peter and Parker, but when, when Peter's like reporting all of this to Parker, Parker, the narrative says Parker was aware of a thin veil of hostility drawn between himself and the friend he valued. He knew that for the first time, Whimsy was seeing him as the police. Whimsy was ashamed and his shame made Parker ashamed too. And the thing that Peter's specifically ashamed of, I think, is that he gets into a little bit of a scuffle with Robert Fentiman. But mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's it's interesting that we are now four books in, and this is like the first time that Peter sees yeah. Parker as the police. Yeah. At least in Parker's estimation. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's because Robert Fentiman is just like, you can't go to the police. Mm-hmm. They're going, they're, they're going to blame George. They're going to pin things on George. Robert Fentiman is all about protecting his brother. Yeah. He basically accuses Whimsy of not having any honor because Whimsy is just like, the police need to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's kind of like that sticky, that sticky place between the professional interest that Parker has to take mm-hmm. and Whimsy's kind of moral sense, you know, like his playing fields of Eaton yeah. attitude. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I think it gives us a slight indication that like, you know, maybe in the past when he thinks about Charles, the scales always tip into like, oh, Charles, my friend, who Mm -hmm. happens to be a policeman. Right. But that this case is making him think of Parker as like, oh, Charles, the policeman who happens to be my friend. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think in that sense, it's like, it's not a coincidence that this is a book that holds Parker at length, at like kind Mm -hmm. of arm's length until he needs to enter in that capacity of of his professional role. Like, you know, we don't see Whimsy inviting him over to smoke cigars early on and like puzzle over the conundrum, mm-hmm. right? We've talked about how he only kind of comes in once Peter needs him in a professional capacity. And then we and then we see him do detective work, but they're in many ways, they're kind of more separated relationally in this book than they've been in the past. Yeah. And it's I think it's interesting that we stick with with Charles a little bit you know like we stick with Parker mm-hmm. after that kind of awkward scene yes and it says that the atmosphere of his own office was bracing to Parker when he got down there you know mm-hmm. it's like he, he gets to step into his like professional role and it's not the more complicated emotional tension yeah someone in his office congratulates him for for his his role in this case right that it's going to like get him a promotion but meanwhile he knows that his friend Peter is being is is having a lot of like emotional difficulty. Yes. Um, and even the moment when Peter leaves Parker's house, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to sort of get right footed of like, Oh yes. Right. Oh, mm-hmm. cheerio. Bye-bye. And then I love this, but it just says the bedroom door shut, the flat door shut, the front door shut. So it's like mm-hmm. all of these barriers going up between them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which makes me sad. Yeah. But I mean, it's not a permanent rift later on in the day, like the actual day, mm-hmm. Peter, calls Parker and it says that it was whimsy a determinedly brisk and cheerful whimsy this time yeah um and so what happens is that uh, whimsy says that he wants to see Miss Dorland but uh Parker has just gotten word that Miss Dorland left Lady Dormer's house 
Mm-hmm. So, like, a detective was watching the house and saw a young woman come in and pick her up, and they left with a suitcase. And so Whimsy says, well, well what I really want is to see her studio. Mm-hmm. So they go off together um, and Peter takes a look-see at all her books. Um, yes. And, you know, very, very tellingly, she's uh, she's read some Conan Doyle. Wait, uh-huh. no, no, no. Parker's read Conan Doyle um, and Hardy. <laughs> and when he's not too tired, he has a go at Henry James, uh, which is hilarious. Meanwhile, Anne Dorlin reads a lot of modernist female writers. So Dorothy mm-hmm. Richardson, Virginia Woolf, Catherine Mansfield etc so uh, and dear me quite a row of dh lawrence <laughs> so yeah she's very much on the the kind of cutting edge of the the literary world in that sense there's no mm-hmm. wells there's no bennett like she's very much reading the the modernists um the uh-huh. experimental writers of the time and she's got a bunch of medical textbooks yes in this chapter has one of the one of my favorite sayers quotes mm-hmm. peter says it's the books and paintings i want to look at Books, you know, Charles, are like lobster shells. We surround ourselves with them, and then we grow out of them and leave them behind as evidences of our earlier stages of development. (laughs) It's a lovely way to think of books. Yes. Yeah. We also see that she's been reading some some detective fiction Mm -hmm. of the more sensationalist variety, I think. Peter says, the girl's been indulging in an orgy of crime. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which... You know, and like those are the mo- most recent mm-hmm. uh, kind of kind of lobster shells, as Peter puts it. And I think that that is interesting because as we kind of learn going on is that, you know, these other picked up and abandoned interests mostly stemmed from Andorland looking for romance. Mm-hmm. There's all the art and that was kind of, you know, she, she was there was an artist she was interested in and, you know, possibly... You know, she and like she was interested in being included in that set. Mm-hmm. You know, she was looking for a place to belong, and she kind of dropped that. And then, you know, she's reading all these, you know, advanced modernist writers. Um, but that's you know a little bit in her past now, and she's moved on to this this chemistry and and you know science and kind of like human development. Mm-hmm. One of the the titles that's mentioned is why we behave like human beings. Mm-hmm. But then the most recent thing are, are these, you know, just sensational crime thrillers, which looks bad for her in an investigative sense. You know, it's just like, why why are you reading all these books about crime? You're looking for some inspiration, maybe? <laughs> um, but then also knowing what the other books represented. It's starting to give things away now, but we're, mm-hmm. we're so close to the end of the book that hopefully our, our listeners are caught up with us. But there isn't a romantic interest attached to these crime thrillers, right? Mm-hmm. And so it feels to me like maybe these are books that she actually likes herself. Yeah. She tried reading artistic advanced things and she tried reading science and, you know, she tried these different things and she... And she kind of reached a point where she just stopped doing that and was reading what she enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just like, did Anne, did Anne Dorland finally find her actual personality? <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's to sort of preview without spoilers. The next book that we're going to read, Strong Poison, features a female detective fiction writer who is mm-hmm. also who's standing trial for a murder. And so... 
again with the kind of rhymed or parallel characters. Not that I necessarily think Anne Dorland is like an early version of Harriet Vane, but I think that there are there are ways in which, again, the concerns of this book get picked up, right? I mean, right. Lindsay later on says, you know, even if Anne Dorland is cleared, if it's not like an absolute, if it's not like very, very clear in the public's mind, mm-hmm. it's always going to hang over her. It's always going to follow her. Yeah. And that is certainly going to be a concern in in the next case. Yeah. But then, so having talked about the books, Peter also examines the paintings. Mm-hmm. What Peter observes is that all the paintings are attempts to mimic other people's art mm-hmm. or style yeah uh-huh but then there's one portrait that whimsy like it catches his attention he's like it's it's not good <laughs> it's very bad <laughs> but this one is an effort to imitate nature so like mm-hmm. it's an actual portrait of a person and he says it's been worked on a lot now what was it made her do that and I think that this is what it really starts the the wheels spinning for Peter. Mm-hmm. He tells Marjorie earlier, he's like, I want Andorland to be guilty, but I know that I'm biased. And then there's this incident with George. And it's like, that does not look good for George at all. Mm-hmm. And so Peter's just like, do I suspect my friend? I don't want to. I would much rather suspect this person that I don't know. But now he's gotten to know Anne Dorland through her books, through her artistic efforts. And I think he's starting to go like, I don't want this person to be guilty either. Mm-hmm. Like in Whose Body, when Peter has that conversation with Parker and when they're talking about the railway baron, mm-hmm. whose name I have completely forgotten. Milligan. Uh, Milligan, yes. Because I kept calling him Mulligan. <laughs> but yes, when they're talking about Milligan and Peter's just like, I don't think he did it. I don't have a reason to think he did it, but I don't think he did it. And you're, you're allowed to take your intuition into account. Mm-hmm. This reminds me of that where Peter is going like, I don't think that she did it even though she had the motive, even though she potentially had the means. Mm-hmm. So like, I, th- I just think that my impression of this scene, which we don't get a lot of interiority from Peter in this scene, you know? Right. He straight up refuses to offer it when Charles asks. Yeah. If anything, we're in Parker's head. Mm-hmm. Although we're pretty detached from both of them, I feel like in the scene, but we're closer to Parker's perspective. Mm-hmm. But my impression is that Whimsy is having that same experience where he's just like, I think something about this person and I have to adjust like everything else to fit around it Mm -hmm. but it's what feels right to me yeah and I don't know like I didn't have this is one of those things I didn't have a clear three line Mm -hmm. I have been figuring this out while I said it (laughs) Um, and I will edit it down to sound more intelligent later no but I think (laughs) I think there's certainly Honestly, that to me is why Peter is such a compelling character, mm-hmm. right? Because it's not just cold logic. It's not just like, I have gone into my mind palace and, <laughs> you know, like have all the facts. Like he's he's willing to bring up all the ways that he might be biased, right? Mm-hmm. He's willing to bring up that like liking a suspect makes things more difficult for him and clouds his mm-hmm. judgment. But I think he also has a really good intuition about people. Mm-hmm. Like that there are ways in which like, yeah, he can look at the paintings and the books and understand something about another human being's character that's not it's not based on like numbers or rationality. It's based off of studying human nature. And mm-hmm. and I think 
I think we increasingly see that as the, the series goes on. I mean, there's like a part in Gaudy Night where he says to Harriet, you know, like if you just kind of think about human nature <laughs> for a bit, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll see like you've gone off the rails a bit because you're letting a, a general sense or like a societal sense of people of a stereotype cloud your, your actual observation of human nature. And so I don't know, I, I like that this is kind of being brought forward. And I think, I think bringing it up in conjunction to that scene in Whose Body really works because just a few pages later, it's after they've gone to the nurse to, you know, see if there's any chance that Miss Dorland could have slipped something into the brandy. And she says, you know, absolutely not. Like with that large of a dose, he would have already been, been mm-hmm. feeling it before he left the house. So, you know, you can kind of get that idea out of your head. But Peter and Parker run into Sal Hardy. And then, side note, who was, in fact, due to meet Waffles Newton at the Falstaff. <laughs> and I just circled that and wrote too much in my <laughs> book because, uh, yeah, maybe maybe my new favorite name after <laughs> Sir Impey Biggs. But anyway, there's this part where Parker and Sal are talking about the case and kind of going back and forth. And Sal just sort of throws out like, oh, you know, like my theory is blah, blah, blah. And Peter blurts out, but you asked she... And then he shut his mouth again with a snap. No, I won't. Fish it out for yourselves. And it goes on to say, Illumination was flooding in on him in great waves. Each point of light touched off a myriad others. Now a date was lit up and now a sentence. The relief in his mind would have been overwhelming had it not been for that nagging central uncertainty. It was the portrait that worried him most. Painted as a record, painted to recall beloved features, thrust face to the wall and covered with dust. And mm. that that bit about Illumination flooding in on him in great waves really reminds me of when he solves the case in Whose Body, right? Where it's like, all the pieces fall together in place for him all at once. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, this time he doesn't have a breakdown in response to it. But yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's kind of talk about that in more detail. And and this is going to be us giving away the final whodunit. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the visit to the studio where Peter has been looking at the paintings and specifically has seen the portrait that was obviously done from life and where a lot of care was put into it. Parker, this is it's kind of sad but a penny for your thoughts then said parker trying desperately to keep the conversation on a jocular footing and not even 30 pieces of silver replied whimsy mournfully Mm. 30 pieces of silver is a reference to judas in the new testament betraying jesus for 30 pieces of silver Mm -hmm. just before that whimsy has said that he was hoping this room would tell me the same thing that it told you but it hasn't it's told me different Mm -hmm. whimsy says i told you about the george business this morning because glass bottles are facts and one mustn't conceal facts, but I'm not obliged to tell you what I think. Mm-hmm. And Parker says, you don't think then that Anne Dorland did the murder? And Whimsy says, I don't know about that. I think that Whimsy thinks that Anne Dorland might be a party to the murder. Mm-hmm. And the idea of that worries him. Yeah. Because I think on some level it feels wrong to him, but he doesn't see another solution. Mm-hmm. Other than the possibility that George did it, which I think is a possibility that he also doesn't care for at all. Yeah. But then there's this conversation with Sal Hardy where he's just like oh obviously the girls in league with the doctor isn't it obvious Mm -hmm. and Parker's talking about but that's a hard thing to prove we know of course that they both sometimes went to Mrs. Rushworth's house but there's no evidence that they knew each other well and that's when Peter has his moment of illumination Mm -hmm. and what he's realized is that Anne Dorland and Dr. Pinberthy had a relationship because the portrait was of Pemberthy, which Peter mm-hmm. recognized and Parker didn't. Yeah. 
And it explains, you know, the the medical interest. It explains in hindsight why she didn't come to the Rushworths house that night because mm-hmm. Pemberthy had just gone and engaged himself to someone else. Someone else. Yeah. Yeah. It explains why she dropped the interest in chemistry. Yeah. It explains why Marjorie had gotten the idea that Andorlin was interested in sick nursing and wellness Mm -hmm. because obviously she would have gotten interested in that because that was his interest and that's yeah that's how Andorlin is just like this this is how you love someone right by doing what they're interested in right which is I you know she reminds me like not in personality but in terms of the you love someone by subsuming yourself to their interest so much Mm -hmm. of Vera Finlater yeah from a natural death and and similarly to Vera, spends part of this book shielding someone that she loves because Anne Dorlin very much has a sense that Dr. Pemberthy did the deed. We find out later that when he broke up with her, he did it in, in a really cruel way where, you know, he basically said, like, you've been imagining things. You've been imagining yeah. I'm interested in you because you're so obsessed with sex. And it, it's yeah. so humiliating to her that she can't she's she's not going to, like, go to the police with it because what a horrible thing for, you know, someone you were in love with to say about you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's something that some of the rumors that Marjorie Phelps has heard is. Like Naomi Rushworth, the person that Pemberthy ran off and got engaged to, was saying stuff to Marjorie about like, oh, you know, there's always been something weird about Anne Dorland. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's always had a little bit of a complex. Yeah. That's very much Pemberthy's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's another one of those things where, you know, maybe the first time you read the book, you're a little bit like, wow, who? She loves, huh? <laughs> um, <laughs> but like all the clues really are there and it's so interesting because like we meet Pemberthy so early on right I mean he's actually the person at the club it's like oh it's so lucky we have a doctor here to you know the time of death uh yeah and if it were like a one hour tv procedural Pemberthy would be played by like the most famous guest actor and that's how you would know (laughs) (laughs) that he did it yes well like when Peter went and tried to see and Dorlin and she snubs him with this rude little note Mm -hmm. and then he goes to her lawyer and also gets snubbed and he's just like Merbles must have been talking Mm -hmm. because they knew immediately why he was there yeah and in retrospect he had already talked to Dr. Pinberthy and Dr. Pinberthy knew Mm -hmm. that he was looking into it and Dr. Pinberthy obviously told Anne Dorland. Yeah. And Dr. Pinberthy fed Anne Dorland a bunch of stuff about like they're trying to get one over on you so like don't agree to a settlement. Mm-hmm. Like don't don't talk to them because they're being greedy and they're out for all they can get. Yeah. Yeah. And then he breaks up with her. So like basically the reason that she agrees to settle before the exhumation happens is because when Pemberthy hears there's going to be an exhumation that's when he drops her. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, so. no, I don't think so. No. I believe no, if I'm remembering the timeline correctly, he tells her to agree to, to offer to settle. Oh, because to... he knows the exhumation's happening. Right, because he knows it and he knows that the exhumation is going to find something. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is the point where she realizes that he's involved. Yeah, you're right. I'm just like, I forget where that is. Mm-hmm. Like, I, Where Anne Dorland is gone is that she has gone to stay with Marjorie Phelps. Yeah. And Whimsy goes to Marjorie's studio. And meets her there. And meets her there um, without knowing at first who she is, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, because he doesn't go there. And he doesn't know that Marjorie's the person who took her away. Right. Yeah. Uh, because Charles didn't know. And mm-hmm. so he goes there because 
He says, my spirit needs soothing. Feminine society has indicated virtuous feminine society. No emotions. I'll go and have tea with Marjorie Phelps. <laughs> oh, Peter. But he goes to Marjorie's studio and encounters Andorlin and, you know, realizes after a little while who she is. Mm-hmm. And he has this conversation with her. And, you know, and it, it kind of all comes out. Yeah. And she explains how she had realized that Timberthy was involved but she was in love with him and so she was shielding him but when he realized that the investigation was going south for him he dropped her and tried to distance himself from her as much as possible while dropping her in such a way as to make her too embarrassed to tell anyone what had happened yeah right they had a quarrel when he tried to persuade her to to settle And it's funny because he didn't actually know that she was going to have 12,000 pounds come to her anyway. Mm -hmm. So going back a little bit to to talking about Peter's intuition. Mm -hmm. No, he has this conversation with Charles before he goes to Marjorie's, before he meets Andorl and he's talking to Charles and he's like, look here, Charles, this is all wrong. You may have got the right solution, but the working of the sum is all wrong. Same as mine used to be at school when I looked up the answer in the crib. And had to fudge in the middle part, which <laughs> Wednesday cheated on your maths homework. <laughs> what he's telling Charles is wrong is that Charles is just like, oh, okay, so she got she got involved in the murder and bribed him to do it, mm-hmm. and and Peter is just like, I know that that's wrong. Yeah, like I know Pemberthy did it now, but I don't like. Yeah, the, it's like it doesn't it doesn't it, fit. Mm-hmm doesn't fit the portrait or the books or the way Nurse Armstrong described Anne Dorland or your description of her. It's a mechanically perfect explanation, but I swear it's all wrong. Mm-hmm. And that is interesting to me because I feel like that's a precursor of strong poison. Mm-hmm. And it's also really shows Peter relying on his intuition. He's just like, I can tell that this, the pieces fit together, but yeah. the puzzle's not right. Yeah. Well, and that's what makes him a detective and not a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Right. That's why he's Peter and not Sir Impey. Like he, I think it's, it's like hand in hand with his moral sense of the sense of right and wrong, the sense of like, once I am on the trail, I can't leave it. But it's also like Peter would never be satisfied with simply solving a case because, okay, here are all the clues. And here's the answer that makes the clues work. He always has to factor human nature into it. Mm-hmm. Well, and Parker's just like, you've got that portion on the brain. It's because you're artistic, I suppose. <laughs> And he's like, artistic be damned. It's because I'm an ordinary person and have met women and talked to them like an ordinary human being. (laughs) Which is wonderful because like at this point, you know, Charles Parker has been in love with Mary Whimsey for how long? Like (laughs) so long. Yeah. Maybe just loving her from afar. (laughs) Yeah. And it kind of ends in an argument. Mm -hmm. That's where things stand when he actually meets Andorland is that he, he knows in his heart that mm-hmm. she didn't do it or that if she was involved it was kind of as a pawn yeah he knows that Pemberthy was the mastermind but he doesn't have any evidence and he doesn't have any proof mm-hmm. and he also knows that the police line of investigation is that Andorlin masterminded it and bribed Pemberthy to help yeah he's in this unfortunate situation of knowing too much for his own good mm-hmm Do you think that's why I've been trying to come up with a grand unified theory of like why Peter turns certain criminals into the police and why he Mm -hmm. lets certain criminals politely off themselves? I do think that in those situations, 
you and I have talked a bit about this and whether it's a class thing. And I think that it certainly is. Mm -hmm. Or I certainly think that that's an element of it. Yeah. And I do think that there is an element of compassion towards the people left behind. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's solely a class thing. And I don't think that it's... It's solely out of consideration, but I do think that it is a, a combination of those two elements that lead him to to kind of offer, to offer that. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and like when you were talking, it sort of occurred to me for the very first time that Peter is also trying to save her the embarrassment, right, of mm-hmm. having this go to a public trial and having it all get dragged out. Yeah. Which is interesting because he was... You know, he was willing to try to avoid that with his own brother and with Mrs. Grimethorpe, but he was like, I will absolutely bring Mrs. Grimethorpe out and like, <laughs> you know, like air all the dirty laundry if I have to. Whereas here he's, or or I wonder also if he worries that like it wouldn't be an airtight enough case because it would devolve into a like, she said, he said about what their relationship was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. I think that Peter was very motivated by a desire to spare Anne Dorland from the publicity yeah yeah from more public humiliation in future books that uh we will get to in time (laughs) i think that that's a definitely a consideration that comes up Mm -hmm. that this is what's going to be least painful the guilty party is going to be punished and the the remaining like the survivors are going to experience the least pain Mm -hmm. yeah and you know whether whether we find that he he only trusts the guilty party to quote unquote do the right thing if they're of a certain class. We'll we'll see. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I also yeah. I love the bit where he you know he takes Andorland out to dinner because uh-huh. uh, that's what Peter does. <laughs> um, he takes her out to a splendid dinner and you know is like okay just order whatever you want and she she asks if there's something like the restaurant does especially well and he's just he's like very admiring of her in that moment and. He says, may I be impertinent? Not an artist, not a bohemian, not a professional man, a man of the world. And she's like, what do you mean? And he says, for you, this is the kind of man who is going to like you very much. The wine I've sent away, it's no good for lobster or for champagne and lobster sort of person. Not for very young people. It's too big and rough, but it's got the essential gut. So have you. It takes a fairly experienced palate to appreciate it. But you and it will come into your own one day. So I don't know. I think I think it's kind of sweet of him. Mm-hmm. To, I mean, you know, maybe it's a bit condescending too, but like <laughs> to say, you know, you've kind of been looking for the wrong kind of guy. There is someone who's going to really appreciate you and he'll appreciate your brains, right? You'll find that yours mm-hmm. will be the leading brain of the two. He will take great pride in that fact, which is funny because we know that Robert Fentiman asks her out at the end of the book and it's like, hmm, is it, would we say that Robert is a <laughs> an experienced palate? <laughs> um. We haven't spoken very flatteringly of Robert Fentiman, <laughs> no. but he's, you know, like, he's not a bad person. No. He's an acquired taste, <laughs> potentially. Yeah. He does, you know, fit in with what Peter is saying to Andorin about, like, you need someone who who will let you be the brains, who will be comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. And Robert Fentiman is just kind of like, he, he knows he's not a mastermind. <laughs> Uh, you know, like when Peter kind of like uncovers the whole plot, Robert Finman's just like, oh, well, I gave it a shot. It was fun. <laughs> I should have known that she would see through me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's not like intellectually offended that he's been bested. <laughs> he was like, I kind, yeah. of was, kind of thought it was going to happen all along. 
She's like, I thought, why not give it a go? But whatever. Yeah. And Robert Fintanen, he's kind of a, a, a brash, rough, slightly abrasive personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, but he also does give Peter that whole speech about, like, you should be polite to women all the time. And, yeah. and, and caring. Poor Anne Dorland could use some of that. Yeah. Even though Robert says um, she had to take up that art business to give her an interest, poor child, but she's really cut out for an ordinary, sensible, feminine life. I'm like, oh, <laughs> um, like, uh, okay. okay, but yeah, but I think it's yeah. you know he respects her. He thinks that she went mm-hmm. through something really harrowing, and he's mm-hmm. you know he appreciates her intelligence. Like so, yeah, maybe yeah. maybe they'll rub along together well. Yeah, but. Just to just tie up the loose ends, yeah. we should go back to George. Because it's after this that George is found. Yeah. Well, poor George thinks that he's killed his grandfather mm-hmm. and writes a confession. And it's it's really sad because it, he's, I mean, it, it's, I don't, you know, I don't know if you'd call it split personality. Like, I don't know enough about that diagnosis. But it's, George writes a confession of basically, like, he thinks someone else is occupying his body and that person killed his grandfather. And he's like, I have uh-huh. to make this statement quickly because he's asleep. And if he wakes up, you know, he'll stop me. And you you get the sense that, like, that's, you know, he's in his own head. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that what's interesting is that Peter gets there to the police station where George has turned himself in. And Sheila is there looking after him. And a couple of doctors have come. The police surgeon is there. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Pinberthy is there. Mm-hmm. And Parker asks Dr. Pemberthy, he's like, what do you think about this delusion? Did he do this insane act? And Pemberthy says, he certainly thinks he did it. I can't, I couldn't possibly say for certain whether there is any foundation for the belief. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that's what settles things for whimsy. Mm-hmm. The willingness that Pemberthy has. Like, he's not outright being like, yes, he did it. Yeah. The willingness that Pemberthy has to, like, first throw Andorl into the wolves and now George. Mm-hmm. That's when he's like, let's go to the club. <laughs> like, yeah, he's just like, come round to the club with me for a moment, Pemberthy. I want to have a word with you. Mm-hmm. Because you are a bad person. We go back to the Bologna Club, which is a nice circle mm-hmm. to where things began. And you mentioned that most of the chapter titles are are card related Mm -hmm. and this one is called the cards on the table (laughs) peter takes penberthy to the library of the club which i want to go back to that first description of the library Mm -hmm. where peter had his first interview with penberthy we've really come full circle to we're back at the malona club we're back in the library we're back with dr penberthy and whimsy and in chapter five, mm-hmm. which is when the first interview takes place, the description of the library, it says it was a large, quiet, pleasant room with the bookshelves arranged in bays, each of which contained a writing table and three or four chairs. Sitting in the farthest bay, immured by books and silence, confidential conversation could be carried on with all the privacy of the confessional. Which, like, this is so long before we have even a hint of Penberthy being involved at all, right? Mm-hmm. But we have that line just slipped in there. Yeah. And and now we're back. We're back at the confessional. Mm-hmm. We've known all along that after leaving Lady Dormer's house, um, the general went to Dr. Penberthy because he wasn't feeling well. Penberthy tells Whimsy that he had been 
secretly engaged to Andorland for the money that he expected her to get from Lady Dormer all along. Mm -hmm. And he wanted the money because he wanted to open up his clan's clinic. He tells Peter, he's just like, I would have been a good husband to her. (laughs) It's just like, that doesn't make it better. No. Marry her for money. Yeah. Especially after the way you treated her. Mm Mm-hmm. So Dr. Primberthy has that plan in motion where he's like, I'm going to marry this girl and get all this money and open my clinic. But then his patient, General Fintiman, comes to him and the general innocently tells him the whole thing mm-hmm. about the circumstances of Lady Dormer's will. He was just like, you know, she's probably going to die tonight and I'm going to inherit this money unexpectedly. And, you know, he's kind of worrying aloud about how much to leave to George and how much to leave to Robert. And can George be trusted with this money or should he give it just to Sheila? And Pemberthy just like sees all this money that he expected to get like running away, Mm -hmm. slipping through his fingers. So he makes up a pill with an overdose in it and gives it to the general. It's just like, you know, take this in a little bit to perk you up and sends the general on his way. Yeah. And going back to how terrifyingly easy it is to murder people. Right. I don't like how how easy it is to kill people. Never tell your doctors how much money you have. (laughs) Never. Never tell anyone how much money you have. Especially not your relatives (laughs) or anyone. Just keep it under your hat. But and then things just continued to get more and more complicated. You know, it would have been simple if Robert hadn't moved the body. Mm-hmm. The general would have dropped dead before Lady Dormer died, and the money would have gone to Andorland, and Dr. Pinberthy would have gotten everything he wanted. Yeah. But that's not how things happen. <laughs> no, indeed. No. Basically, Whimsy's like, you need to write down this confession. And he leaves Pemberthy to do it. And then he finds Colonel Marchbanks and asks mm-hmm. Colonel Marchbanks to give him his revolver. He kind of asks the colonel to to be a witness as, as well, like yeah. not to, to the suicide. Yeah. Like he, does, he doesn't just say, hey, Marchbanks, can I borrow your, your revolver? No. He explains to him the situation. Yeah. And Marchbanks says, you've done the best thing to my mind. Make a clean job of it. Mm-hmm. And then Peter, Peter and the colonel go back in together. And actually, actually, the colonel puts the gun into the table drawer. You know, it's kind of like having a duel and having the the doctor turn around so that he can't say what happened. Mm-hmm. That he has plausible deniability. Yeah. Whimsy takes the confession and reads it. And Colonel Marchbanks witnesses the confession. Mm-hmm. And then it says that. This was done. Whimsy gathered the sheets together and put them in his breast pocket. Then he turned silently to the colonel as though passing the word to him. Dr. Pinberthy, said the old man, now that that paper is in Lord Peter Whimsy's hands, you understand that he can only take the course of communicating with the police. But as that would cause a great deal of unpleasantness to yourself and to other people, you may wish to take another way out of the situation. As a doctor, you will perhaps prefer to make your own arrangements. If not, he drew out from his jacket pocket the thing which he had fetched. If not, I happen to have brought this with me from my private locker. I am placing it here in the table drawer, preparatory to taking it down and into the country tomorrow. It is loaded. Mm-hmm. And like, it's just like, it's a very formal, solemn sort of scene. The colonel closes the drawer slowly, stepped back a couple of paces and bowed gravely. Whimsy put his hand on Pemberthy's shoulder for a moment, then took the colonel's arm. Their shadows moved, lengthened, shortened, doubled, and crossed as they passed the seven lights and the seven bays of the library. The door shut after them. Yeah, it's very formal. It's very 
it feels a bit antiquated, I think. Mm-hmm. It's it's very of like the previous generation, right? In this book where we're talking about intergenerational conflict. Yeah. And I think we talked about the end of a natural death and the way it ends with the eclipse. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting, this description of them passing through the light, the way shadows flicker when you move between light sources, right? Mm-hmm. And... I feel like that's another echo of a natural death as well. This visual cue of shadows kind of like moving and not being stable and the light changing. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting to me that in the final chapter, like the final chapter is told pretty much all in untagged dialogue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can from like context clues infer that it's, you know, Peter's conversations with a bunch of people, but that we we're almost like shut out of Peter's emotional state. Mm-hmm. Like we have the image of the shadows, but it's not, it's not like a natural death where he asks Charles if the world is ending because the light is so eerie. Right. It's not like clouds of witness where he gets drunk from relief. It's not like whose body it's. So it's like, I'm, I'm never entirely sure where Peter is emotionally after having solved this case and very very deliberately causing the suspect's death right right yeah i think uh before the kind of epilogue chapter Mm -hmm. there's a shot heard in the in the club and people are running around and there's a commotion and whether it's our old friend from the first couple of chapters is the this, the very special club member who's always got a complaint. <laughs> yeah. Here's another unpleasantness. Pemberthy shot himself in the library. People ought to have more consideration for the members. You know, like once it's happened, once the news is out, it says that Whimsy kind of goes out to the entrance hall and there, as he had expected, he found the plainclothes detective who had been told off to shadow Pemberthy. And he says, send for Inspector Parker. I have a paper to give him. Your job's over. It's the end of the case. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like that applies to him as well. Yeah. That has a huge sense of finality mm-hmm. and more of a sense of closure than we had in Unnatural Death, for sure. Yeah. Possibly even more of a sense of closure than we had in Clouds of Witness. Like Clouds of Witness kind of ends a couple of different times. Mm-hmm. And so like it lacks this firm finality. Yeah. Postmortem, which doesn't, in, in my edition, it doesn't have a chapter number. I don't know if. Um, if other editions are different. Let me see. Mine does, but I don't know if that was added, you know. Yeah. If that's like an extra diegetic kind of thing. In my edition, it just says postmortem with no... Mm. Did you have other chapter titles or chapter numbers, though? Yes, my oh. other chapters are numbered. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. And they're all numbered with Roman numerals, which is a nightmare <laughs> for me because I can never remember <laughs> Roman numerals. I learned them, but I didn't retain them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it could be that we are seeing Peter mature in his, in his understanding of what it means to be a private detective, right? That it means taking on the responsibility to see things through, but then also not like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say like not taking it personally, but, but being able to to like occupy that role of of justice and not have it wreck his sense of self. Right. Like it, it seems like he is now integrating more of that detective self into a whole and complete self. Right. Yeah. What I think also in this instance, 
he knows for a fact that he got the guilty party right. He has mm-hmm. a confession. Mm-hmm. And I think that he doesn't have doubt about like where the weight of justice needs to rest, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and there's an element of compassion that goes into making the choice to allow Pemberthy to uh, take matters into his own hands, as it were. And it's not just compassion towards Pemberthy, you know, like as we were saying, it's compassion for Andorlin and for the Fintiman. Mm-hmm. With all those factors together, I feel like Peter really does have confidence in the choice that he made this time, as opposed to especially a natural death where he was not confident at all once he got... Once he got embroiled into the case. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Hmm. And I do, like, I like this, the postmortem. Like, I know some people find untagged dialogue very frustrating, but it's actually something that I really like. Mm-hmm. It has to be done well. Yeah. And Sayers does it really well. Right, because all the voices are distinctive. Yeah. And I kind of like that we're finding out that things are okay for the remaining characters and, like, how they ended up. But it's happening very quickly. It's not a belabored mm-hmm. epilogue. <laughs> it's just kind of nice. You know, like, George is going to be fine. Sheila's going to be fine. Anne Dorland is pairing up with Robert Fintiman, and they're both going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Marjorie Phelps definitively, like, Peter tries to shoot a shot a little bit with her. And she's yeah. like, uh, no, a relationship with me would not satisfy you, Peter. Forget it. Yeah. <laughs> And Weatheridge is still unhappy about everything all the time. <laughs> because some things have to stay the same. Yep. Yeah. Someone has to uphold tradition. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to me, you know, in all of our conversation about like what book would you start people with? Mm-hmm. And I feel like more and more I'm just convinced that they should start at Whose Body and work their yeah. way through. Yeah, that's um, the conclusion I'm coming to. Yeah, because I love the mystery in this one. I think it's so clever, but... I think we just don't get a lot of Peter's interior life um, the way we do in other books, so earlier ones. Okay, so I think we've covered pretty much everything except my favorite line, which explains part of my forever love for Mr. Murbles. Um, It comes in chapter 11, and it's just very brief. About four o'clock, a messenger arrived panting from Mr. Murbles. And then in parentheses, Mr. Murbles refused to have his chambers desecrated by a telephone. It's just so delightful. I love it so much. Yeah. So listeners, thank you so much for joining us for these three episodes about the unpleasantness at the Bologna Club. And we will be back in two weeks to start talking about Strong Poison and to introduce those of you who've not read the series yet to Harriet Vane. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at WhimsyPod. That's Whimsy, W-I-M-S-E-Y. And you can find transcripts and show notes of our episodes on our website at asmywhimsytakesme.com. Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. If you've enjoyed this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me, we'd love for you to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcatcher of choice. And we also hope that you'll tell all your friends who love Dorothy L. Sayers as much as we do. Join us next time for more Talking Piffle. Mm-hmm.